Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry over there. Frank the Chair's in here. My thick tongue. Uh, Chuck's haircut. Chuck's beard. Not yeah. Chuck's hat. <laughs> Jerry's glasses. Jerry's on the phone. Not knowing what's going on, it's everything right. is right with the world. <laughs> oh, I've been spelling this wrong all these years, by the way. You've been spelling it like Flight of the Concords? Between that and Concord with no E. Okay. And all my writings on the Concord. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you have that blog, Concord Days. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, and I noticed there's no E on it. And I spelled Days, D-A-Z-E. Yes, you did. <laughs> Chuck, we share a mind sometimes because I was about to, had I not been taking a sip of coffee, we uh-huh. would have said that at the same time. D-A-Z-E. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was waiting on you to take a sip so I could steal that. Thanks, dude. Uh, in fact, I tried to get a, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit later about the experience of flying on the the famed and fabled Concorde jet airliner. Uh-huh. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. But uh, I tried to get in touch. I know a person who made that trip. Who? Uh, Justin's mom. I don't know her. I know I Justin. Know. I've never met her. As well. well, imagine Justin, but a mother. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Justin's mom, Carrie, uh, from England, and yeah. she made a, a like since I've known her, mm-hmm. took I guess one of the one of the last trips, early two thousands. Yeah, that would have been. I think it was two thousand three, October two thousand three, when it was decommissioned. Yeah, so I hit her up on Facebook and was like, Carrie, you know, let me know what it was like. But she's in hurricane ravaged North Carolina, oh, so no. she's probably like. Buzz off, Chuck. <laughs> Everything all right with her? Yeah, yeah, they're good. They they went inland. Shout out to all of our peeps who were uh, who had to go through Florence. Yeah, my sister was there right in the middle of it. She okay? Yeah, she's good. Trees down in the area, but like minimal house damage. And they're high on, you know, they oh, sit higher I up. I see what you mean. So it's not like uh, they're not flooded. That's good because a lot of the area is. Yeah, and she was also, I mean, she said it's bad, but she said... The news is always just so sensationalized. Dude, they, She's like, is this so, is not like Hurricane Katrina or anything. Did you see that um, clip of the Weather Channel dude? No, I didn't. So what was he, just like making stuff like, up? No, leaning into the wind like he was about to be blown over. And then in the background, two guys just stroll by <laughs> in like shorts and flip-flops. Not even, I mean, like, I don't even think their hair was blowing. That's shameful. It is shameful. And I'm so glad that that made the rounds yeah. because that's ridiculous. It is. You know? Especially for a weather event where there's genuine fear and like, yeah, you could incite panic. Like, yeah. I think that there's a boo. lot of a lot wrong with that. So, let's shake on it. Done. Okay. All right. So, concords. Oh yeah. So we're talking concords today. I never got to fly on one. No. You didn't. We're going to go rich. ahead and assume Jerry didn't. Yeah. Um, and I don't know anybody who did, but I would have loved to have. And I, I think I've stepped on board one. There's one at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum by Dulles. Oh, I thought you meant you boarded a flight and they're like, sir, you're on the wrong plane. Right. Back when you could do that. Sir, you're asleep right now. (laughs) This is a dream. Um, I can't remember if they actually let you step on it or not. Um, Where was this? Dulles? Dulles Airport, the the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. Is there one still there? Yes. It's it's called the uh, Stephen F. Udvar-Hazy Center. I just call it the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum at Dulles. 
All right. And it's really nice. They have like a um, a stealth um, Blackhawk. No, mm-hmm. not Blackhawk. Blackbird. SR-71 Blackbird. Oh, yeah, sure. Did you know that those things are built so that when they're on the ground, the the plates that hold them, like that make up the, the, the plane, mm-hmm. they have gaps in between them. And the reason is, is because that thing flies so fast and gets so hot that the plates expand. Wow. And it becomes solid when it really counts. But on the ground, apparently, when it's taking off, it would just leak fuel everywhere because it doesn't have like a solid plate to, to speak of. That's like us. Basically. We become solid when it counts. Anyway, at the Air and Space Museum at Dulles, which is frankly worth flying to Dulles just to go to, it's that good. Yeah. Is a Concorde. I think it's an Air France Concorde, um, one of the last ones that was ever flown. Yeah, I'm a fan of Air and Space Museums. You you would love this one, ma'am. I wouldn't I wouldn't say I'm like an aviation mm-hmm. uh hound, but I know people that are. Well, you you don't have to be to appreciate this. It's yeah, made sure. for everybody. And there's a space shuttle there too. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. For sure. I used to go to the one in Pensa, uh, Pensacola, the Naval Air Museum there growing up. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was cool, you know, walk around looking at planes. You're going to love this. Well, all right. So let's go back in time. Okay. To uh the the swinging sixties, Eng- right. England. Yeah, which was pretty swinging. It was. In fact, very quickly, I want to recommend that Michael Caine documentary, My Generation. I haven't seen it. It's not just about Michael Caine. He's sort of like the host of what London was like in like the late sixties. Oh, cool! So pretty cool. That doc. whole Alfie thing. Alfie and the Rolling Stones and Marianne Faithful and he and Albert Finney and just like saying to the class establishment. Yeah. We're young. And also super rich. Uh, well, uh, eventually, sure. Uh, but anyway, in the 60s, this is the early 60s, so mm-hmm. it wasn't quite a swing in then. Uh, the British and the French governments got together and they say, hey, let's uh, let's build a really fast plane together. Yeah, because it turned out that the British and the French were both building what's called a supersonic transport plane. SSTs. And they weren't the only ones doing it. Either it was the Soviets and the Americans, the British and the French were all working on their own supersonic transport plane at the same time, which is weird until you think about <clears throat> jet jet airliners were really, really new. Yeah. And so everybody was all about jet airliners, which made them think, well, what goes even faster than that? supersonic planes that travel faster than the speed of sound. So everybody was working on them at the time. Yeah, I'm surprised that it was that early in airline travel mm-hmm. when they thought, hey, maybe we can go really fast. Mm-hmm. That seemed like it would be like a 30 years on development. I think there was a lot more like inspiration and enthusiasm sure. and yeah, like, yeah. let's shoot for the stars. Money kind to of burn. Thing. <laughs> sure. Um, who who cares about the environment kind of thing. Yeah. But I, I I really get that that sentiment because think about it, four different nations working on the same kind of pie in the sky project. Yeah. That's impressive. So uh they built a couple of prototypes. Um and then the very first flight of the Concorde was nineteen sixty nine. Uh together they made about twenty or they made twenty, not about. This is actually something where they know the number. Right. <laughs> Although I did see sixteen and fourteen production models, but every place I've seen 16. 16 was in more places. So, so not 20. No, production models. Oh, gotcha. So like, I guess, prototypes and stuff don't count. I see. Like 16 that actually flew commercially. Gosh, what did they do with the prototypes? And they just trash them or something? I don't know. 
Maybe that's at Dulles. Or no, that was probably a production model. Yeah, it definitely was. Because you got you want seat stains right. on display right. in all their glory. This one smells like Gerard Depardieu. <laughs> oh, God. Not that guy. Uh, all right. So you talked about the Soviets. They built, and this is hysterical, but they built something called the TU-144, uh, the Tupolev, and they nicknamed it, with a K, the Konkordsky. Right. That seems like a joke. I think, well, I think the Brits and the French nicknamed it that. Oh, okay. And kind of derisively, too, because the Soviet, what the Soviets came up with looks an awful lot like what the Brits and the French came up with. Sure. And it makes you wonder, one of two things, was there like espionage going on? On right. one side or the other, one one group was spying on the other group. I would say yes, probably. Or is it just that the Concorde follows these aerospace principles that any highly skilled, well-trained aerospace engineer would follow and come up with on their own? Probably that, too. I wonder. Okay, that makes more sense, though, because Concordsky was so hysterical that right. it seems like something from, like, the Benny Hill show or something. Yeah, right. So, so by this time— <laughs> I can laugh just hearing Benny Hill show. Yeah. By this time, the French and the British have, have are coming up with their own Concorde. The Soviets have come up with their own. And the Americans are like, we're out. I think Congress funded a report just saying, like, how much is this thing going to cost, by the way? And um, got back the bill and were like, no, we're not doing this anymore. And they scrapped the Boeing, which was the 2707. Oh, is that what it was going to be? Yep. And it, I think they made hay about the, the sound and the noise of the sonic boom. That's supposedly why there aren't supersonic planes anymore. They're going to be up there again, though, I think. Well, we would have to repeal a law in the United States that you can't have overland sonic booms from commercial airlines. Right. And you've got the same law in Europe. So there's two huge continental markets that are just, you can't service anymore because... Right. You, it's illegal to fly over them in a supersonic plane. And that, from what I understand, is the true reason why there's not Concords any longer. Really? Just the boom? Not just the boom. They're really expensive and money uh, well, losers. Sure. But the boom killed it yeah. and has kept it from coming back. Right. Have you ever heard of sonic boom? Yeah. I don't think it's that bad. It depends on the sonic boom. I, I guess it depends on how big I guess you is. wouldn't want one, you know, eight times a day over your neighborhood. Well, that's the thing. It's like, yeah. you know, if, if everybody was flying supersonic, think about how many planes fly overhead of, you know, a, a place that's a place where you live by the airport. Imagine each one having a sonic boom. No, that would get old. But I'm, I'm saying, like, if I'm at the beach and there's, like, an F-16 and I hear the boom, I'm kind of like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you, like, toast them with your beer. <laughs> I love it when those guys buzz the beach. Sure. Like send everything tumbling. It's fun stuff. Uh, boy, should we take a break already? Sure. All right, let's do it. We'll describe what these things were right after this. Uh, Chuck, before we describe the Concorde, which yeah. I'm kind of excited about, we, we should say what happened to the Soviets' um, Concorde ski. <laughs> so it very publicly um, flamed out and crashed at a yeah. Paris air show, killed everybody on board and killed several, I think, eight people on the ground. 
at this air show, which air shows are super dangerous to begin with. Yeah. But apparently, and I saw footage of it, the Soviet pilot was basically flying a Concorde like a stunt plane and overstressed it, and it came apart in the air and just crashed. Yeah, that's not a good idea. No, it's not. It seems like, I mean, these things were definitely agile, but they seemed the the best use was to fly straight and fast and high. Right, and their their performance at the air show followed the either air, I guess the Air France Concorde. Yeah. Um, which just took off, did its thing, and then came back down like a normal flight. Right. And the Soviets were trying to one-up it because, again, this is the Cold War, and France was friends with the U.S. Yeah, so the like, Soviets look at me. This would get back to the <laughs> Americans. Well, maybe we should talk about the other famous crash, too, because that had a lot to do with its ultimate demise. Yeah. Like, combined with many other factors that we'll get to, like you were saying, the expense and the boom. Yeah. But had it not been for the crash on July twenty fifth, 2000, uh, of an Air France Concorde flight from Paris to New York, uh, it may not have been killed off as quickly. Right. So this one, it was flight uh, 4590. It was a charter that I think had a bunch of uh, mainly German tourists headed to a cruise like, to depart from New York. And about five minutes before this thing hit the runway, there was a Continental jet that took off, left behind a piece of metal that was about, 16 inches long and about three inches wide, very small. No one caught it. Uh, And then this Concorde runs over this thing at like 370 miles an hour or something. Yeah, which, I mean, we'll get to that, but those things were fast when they were taken off. Yeah, so who knows if it would have happened on on a regular flight. Uh, And this thing popped up and uh, it blew out a tire and uh, disturbed the fuel tank. Yeah, well, the tire blew the debris into the engine and blew out one of the engines. Yeah, and it it ruptured the fuel tank too. So fuel just comes spewing out of it. Okay, so and there's a very famous picture of that Concorde taking off with just a trail of flames coming out of it. Yeah. And you see it and you're like, wow, the Concorde was cool looking. And then you realize it's not supposed to look like that at all. Yeah, 200 feet of flames. Yeah. So we'll talk uh, in a minute here about the the weird fuel distribution in this thing. But uh, it was about 1,800 pounds overweight at time of takeoff. Yeah, I saw that. And they said that didn't necessarily have anything to do with the wreck. But because it was overweight, they had one of the fuel tanks 94% full, where otherwise it might have been a little redistributed. Uh-huh. So that was most of the fuel at the time. Again, it probably wouldn't have mattered. Like, any fuel on fire is not good. Right. But what struck me was that it was on fire before they took off. Like, they told them, you're on fire. Right. And you're still on the ground. Yeah. But apparently they were going so fast that it was too dangerous. Like, you couldn't stop the plane. Well, the reason that I saw that the pilot um, tried to take off, even though he knew he was on fire, was because he figured he could put the fire out just from the thrust up in the air starving it of oxygen and basically blowing the fire out from the the engine. See, I saw that he couldn't stop because he was going almost 400 miles an hour and they had to go somewhere. Right. Um, I also saw that had they not had more fuel than what they should have had, had they not been overweight, they probably could have gotten aloft. Right. And I think the flight engineer also shut down one of the engines inexplicably. So now they were down two of their four engines and they just they crashed into a hotel. Right, which is remarkable that more people in a hotel didn't die. Yeah. But I think only one person in the hotel was critically injured, and then everybody on board died. Yeah. The plane. Yeah. 
which I mean, did it blow up into a fireball or something like that? I don't think so. Or they so. were just going that fast? No, I think they just crashed. Wow. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of fire involved, mm-hmm. uh, clearly from that photo. Yeah. So Continental and one of Continental's mechanics were actually found guilty of manslaughter, but then it was later overturned. Oh, because of their debris? In 2010, yeah. Interesting. Um, but they, got, they were exonerated in 2010 that really, that, that yes, that piece of metal did start the series of events, but yeah. had it just been the piece of metal and nothing else, they probably would have survived. They would have taken off and then been able to come huh. back in for a control. I wonder plane. if the airport was sued. I don't know. Because it's not the Continental plane's fault necessarily. From what I understand, France sues everybody when there's a plane crash <laughs> that has to do with France. They might sue us. Maybe. About this. Right. Uh, all right. So you want to talk about, all right, that was a tragedy. Well, that so that that combined with the memory of what happened to the Soviet Concord right. really shook people's faith. Right. But as we'll see later on, there were a lot of people who were involved in this project who, if they canceled it, would lose a lot of face. Yeah. That I think hopped on the opportunity to be like, yep, Concords aren't safe. We tried. Right. We'll just scrap it. How about that? Interesting. Yeah. This is a movie. Totally. Don't you think? Mm-hmm. Concord, um, the movie. <laughs> with any. All right. So let's let's just talk about the plane and what made it different and special. Uh, a normal... 747, Boeing 747, goes about 560 miles an hour at just cruising speed at about 35,000 feet. The Concorde, its cruising speed was about 1,350 miles an hour at almost twice the altitude, between 60 and 70,000 feet, which is faster than the speed of sound. Yeah, by a long shot. I think Mach 1 is the speed of sound. This thing would fly at Mach 2 that's at cruising nuts. cruising speed. And 60,000 feet, that's 18,300 meters above sea level. Yeah. That's ridiculously high. You're basically kissing the edge of space right there. Yeah, it's not quite suborbital, but you're flirting with it. Right. So I was like, gosh, I guess it's about where Felix Baumgartner jumped for that one stratosphere jump. Yeah. Remember when he did that? Oh, yeah. He jumped at twice that height, a hundred and I think twenty eight thousand feet. Yeah, that's insane. That guy jumped out of a platform, skydive from that height. Yeah, that's almost so high that it's like, what's the difference between that and sixty thousand? Yeah, maybe. You know, I don't know. And he lived. He did live, and he really pulled it out because remember he started to spin. Yeah, yeah. And they were worried he'd blacked out and he was done for. I bet he's not finished. No, I'm surprised he hasn't done anything recently. It's been long enough. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the design of this thing because you, you can't just, like, soup up an engine on a 747 and say, all right, now you can fly faster and higher. Right. Like, this plane had to be completely <laughs> designed for this purpose. Yeah, because, again, 747, which flies pretty fast, would just totally break up if you could somehow get it to yeah. the speed of sound. Because the speed of sound itself is really, really fast, and it's a different type of flying just from the friction and everything in the air. Sure. But also to get to the speed of sound requires um, a lot of effort on your plane's part. (laughs) Yeah. Did you ever read um, The Right Stuff? No, I never read that. Tom Wolf did a great explanation of Chuck Yeager being the first person to break the sound barrier. Like, no one knew what happened beyond this wall of sound that forms— or wall of air that forms at the nose of the plane. 
And Jaeger was like, it's going to, like, it felt like the plane was just going to break to oh, pieces. But he imagine. just knew, just knew that if he just got on the other side of it, it'd be smooth sailing. Right. He was absolutely right. Yeah. Supersonic sailing or supersonic flight is smoother than subsonic flight. Um, and it's definitely smoother than flying just below the speed of sound. But it's a, just this beautiful description wow. of Jaeger doing it. That's awesome. Yeah. But the point is, is to fly at supersonic, faster-than-sound speeds, you have to have a specialized plane, I think is what you're trying to say, like five yeah, minutes ago. Sure. So we're going to go through each one of these sort of design features mm-hmm. and uh, one by one, starting with the fact that it was streamlined to begin with, and it's designed. So like you were talking about, that wall of air, right. uh, in order to help punch through that, uh, you have to streamline your plane, and the Concorde had very famously... It just looked cool, but it had a very specific purpose, that mm. needle-like nose on the front. That's to punch through that wall of air. Yeah, it wasn't to look cool. No, but it did look pretty cool. That was just a side, a side uh, benefit. And the, the plane itself was very sleek and, and um, needle-like, too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the, the wings, it had a uh, what's called a swept-back delta wing. So uh, the wings were triangular and connected to the fuselage all all along. So it wasn't just like a rectangular wing coming off. Mm-hmm. It, you know, you've seen pictures. It's just like a big folded napkin, like a big triangle. Yeah, kind of. And and for those of you not in the know, a fuselage is like the main body of the plane. Right. Where the passengers go. That's right. And not many of them in the case of the Concorde. No, because it, it, it was much smaller um, width-wise than a 747. 747 is like 20 feet across. Yeah. This is half that. Yeah. And so it would fit about a hundred passengers in two rows of two with an aisle going down the middle. Yeah. Uh, it was not a big plane. It was small. No, and apparently there was a, a bathroom in the middle, so it was sort of divided into two sections, but they weren't different. Right. Like one wasn't first class and one was business. They were all identical, but I had pulled some quotes from writers, and one of the guys was like, <clears throat> but you still felt better if you were in the front, like you were a better right. person. Right. I guess, which is crazy. Yeah. Because you'll die sooner. Um, didn't we determine that at one point? Yeah. You're slightly more likely to survive in the rear of a plane crash? I think in the middle oh, or the, the middle? rear, one of the two. Definitely I mean, not the front, though. No. So take that first class, yeah. snobs. Uh, yeah, so nine and a half feet wide, um, 202 feet long. So it's a little shorter than a 747, but not much. No, not much. So it's just... It's just narrower and more streamlined. It's like a little dart just punching right through the air. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is the fuselage, like you said, the body uh, and the wing, there was there was no space, like I mentioned. It was all just attached and the, and the engine mounted not on struts but directly to the wing. So that uh-huh. was very different. Yeah. It's, that's one of the things that's like so iconic about the Concorde's design is that it was it appeared to be like all one piece. Like, the body just kind of moved out yeah. into the wing. The wings, like, dropped down to to produce the engines and then dropped back or, and then went back up into the wing. Yeah. It just looked super cool. And I'm sure a lot of it was aesthetics, but even more so it was this thing has to have as few separate pieces as possible because more pieces means it could break up. You want to just basically be one solid plane. Yeah, and because of that wing design, it meant uh, not only did you have uh, reduced drag and 
better lift for takeoff and landing. Mm-hmm. But there was there was no horizontal stabilizer on the tail. Yeah. So when you look at a, a regular jumbo jet, you see like the horizontal piece of the tail goes up. Then you have the two little tiny wings on that. They don't. They didn't have those. Right. Tiny wings. Right. So again, just kind of streamlined. Right. Exactly. Um, the uh, nose itself, too. So the wing, that's a pretty significant aerospace design. I didn't realize that until it started popping up, like, in researching this yeah. again and again. That, like, it's one thing to design a wing that can, you know, cut through the air at supersonic speeds. But you aren't going to land or take off at supersonic speeds. So that wing has to do double duty. Yeah. It has to be able to keep you aloft at supersonic speeds. It also has to keep you aloft at subsonic speeds. So from what I understand, the wing on the Concorde was like a triumph of engineering. Yeah. I I don't know about you, but I I don't get scared to fly. But sometimes still when I look out and I see the wing wobbling and Uh kind of flapping, I think, man, I wish more of that was connected to the plane. Yeah. It just looks like more stable. It looks like it's trying to flap its wings. Yeah. You know? That always is disconcerting to me. I have to say, I have come so far. Oh, sure. With fear of flying. Man, I've seen and it. And ju- I've thanked her before, and I'm going to thank her again. Thank you to Yumi for yeah. getting me over my fear of flying because my life would be so much worse if I were still scared to fly. Well, yeah, and she was probably like, dude, I want to go places. <laughs> right. With you. You're going to have to get over <laughs> this, buddy. Yeah, I remember the days when you were the the— what was it, the dark night of the sky or the black ghost in the sky? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Josh would wear a blanket completely over his head mm-hmm. while you flew. So it could be the black ghost or the red ghost or the gray ghost. It depended on the color <laughs> of the blanket. Chuck, to my great dismay, I found recently that they washed those blankets maybe once every four flights, oh. maybe once every eight flights. Did you think they washed them between every flight? I thought it was new every uh. time. That's, I wouldn't have put it over my head if I'd known that, like, God knows who did what into that blanket. Yeah. Did you know? I thought they were either single serve and then they, like, donated them. Uh-huh. Or if they did rewash them, that it certainly was not every flight. I wish you would have brought this up. Because <laughs> I can still, like, taste <laughs> oh, God. old blankets in my <laughs> mouth now. I think I'm hallucinating, but I can still taste it. It's the same. It's real to me. Oh, all right. So— I believe before we got sidetracked a minute ago, you were about to say something about the nose tilting and moving. Yes. So what's the deal there? Oh, oh okay. <clears throat> so the angle of attack. Yeah. Uh, if a plane's flying straight, we'll call that a horizontal angle of attack. Sure. Nah. Call, call it getting there. What is this, 90 degrees? What are you talking about? So what angle is this? 90 degree? Well, you're not saying an angle. You're just you just have your arm out straight. Okay. So let's say a plane is flying completely horizontal parallel to the ground. Okay. But it's flying forward. So it's if if we pop it up, so the nose is up. Yeah. It's flying at a, a steep angle of attack. Okay. I think if it's coming down really fast, it's also a steep angle of attack, but the Concorde is meant to come in so that its nose is popped up way higher than like a 747 when it lands. Right. The angle of attack. The problem is, is because of that long needle-like nose, if you're a pilot, you can't see past that when you're flying or taking off because the angle of attack is so steep. So they actually designed the nose to basically elevate downward to get out of their view when the plane was taking off or landing. Yeah. And then before it went into supersonic speeds, it would pop into place so that it was a pointy needle. Yeah. So it actually— Pretty awesome. Yeah, it moved in flight 
and you and it also had a little visor on it because you're going so fast to, I guess, just to break that wind over the the window or that bird. God, can you imagine what that thing did to birds it ran into? Yeah, there, no bird. No, like a Randy Johnson fastball. Yeah, do you ever see that big unit? Wow, look at you. Sure, that's <laughs> like. It's almost like when Emily throws out a sports fact every now and then. <laughs> I was alive in America in the 90s. Everybody knew who the big unit was. No, that's true. She was talking one time about, she said something about Eli Manning. Mm-hmm. I was like, how do you know Eli Manning? She's like, I know the Manning guys. She's like, one of them wears the uh, the orange outfit and one wears the blue outfit. <laughs> At least she didn't say costume. <laughs> I may have yeah. said costume. Outfit. That's pretty You know good. who's got me and Emily uh, combined beat is Hodgman. Oh, for sports? Yeah. Yeah. He, th- he's he's just willfully ignorant of sports. Yeah, although he has gotten into a thing here in his middle age where he will go to a sporting event if someone offers him the chance. Oh, really? Because he just was almost more, more like a sociological experiment. Yeah, yeah. Not like, ooh, I want to go root for the right. Giants or whatever. Right. Just like, oh, well, this is fascinating I to wanna, I observe. Count the number of hot dogs that are eaten by Hodgman. No, just by everyone around him. Oh yeah, sure. Um, all right, where were we? The visor and killing birds. So now let's talk about the engines. Okay, so those engines on a Concorde were there were four engines, two on each wing. Rolls Royces. Yeah, Rolls Royce. How about that? How do you say the other company? Uh, taking a stab at it? I would say the S is silent, so I'm just going to go the Nekma Olympus. Oh, okay. Or Snekma. I would have gone with Snekma. All right, maybe it's Snekma. It sounds like a skin condition. It does. So the Rolls-Royce Snekma engine were capable of 18.7 tons of thrust each, which I have no frame of reference. It just sounds like a lot. It does sound like a lot. Yeah. And if it doesn't sound like a lot to you, prepare for this. The four engines aboard the Concorde um, combined burned 6,771 gallons of fuel per hour. And not only that. Yeah, that sounds like a ton. It was, well, supposedly it took a ton of fuel per seat. That was the rule of thumb for the Concorde. Oh, like literally a ton of fuel per passenger. That's what I read. Wow. Um, And the... uh, the fuel they used was kerosene, which is so redneck for like a British Airways Air France <laughs> yeah. joint thing. They yeah. were burning kerosene. Like Hank Hill City. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was propane, but still. Oh, that's right. Um, all right. So like we said before, though, these engines were attached directly to the underside of the wing. There were no struts. Mm-hmm. I know when you're in a plane now and you just look at a normal jumbo jet, it looks like that engine is attached to the wing, but it's or part of the wing. But it actually is attached with these metal poles called struts. Right, which is fine for subsonic flight. Sure. Um, again, though, the engines for the Concorde, part, basically part of the wing. Right. So that they wouldn't come off. Uh, and then the afterburning, that is probably the coolest part of this whole thing to me. Yeah. Uh, the Brits called it reheating <clears throat> or having they? a wet engine. Yeah. Really? But afterburning is like what an F-16 will do. Uh, if you want extra juice— you mix raw fuel. You know how you see like the red flame coming out of the back of an engine? Yeah. You actually mix raw fuel with that after it's been burned yeah. once just to juice you even more. Yeah, like the whole reason they have um, uh, tests of your car's emission systems yeah. is because 
you're, you don't burn all of the gas that you're trying to burn in your engine. Right. Some of it escapes unburned or partially burned. What, the, what an afterburner engine does is it captures that exhaust and puts it through a second burner yeah. to get as much of that, that what would have been lost energy from being lost and just giving it that extra boost. Yeah. That is how it would reach supersonic speeds. Um, and the, it, was, it would be so loud in there. Apparently, when the afterburners were on, yeah. But in the in the British French Concorde, you didn't have to have the afterburners on all the time. In the Soviet uh, Concordsky, <laughs> you had to have the afterburners on the whole time. So it was like ungodly really? loud in the cabin the entire flight. That was another mark against it. Well, that's crazy because afterburners are for like even in fighter jets, it's like for minimal use. But when you're, like, on the highway to the danger zone, that's when you kick in the afterburners. <laughs> yeah. It's just, like, every now and then to get more thrust, that that is crazy. It's only meant to be for short bursts. Right. From what I saw, they had to have the afterburners on the whole time to wow. maintain supersonic flight in, yeah. the, in the TU-144. Is that right? Yeah, the, yeah, the, the Konkordsky. <laughs> <laughs> that is nuts. Well, no wonder it didn't work. Um, should we take another break? Sure. All right, we'll talk more about fuel and paint right after this. All right, fuel and paint. Mm-hmm. What's the deal with the fuel? 17 fuel tanks, thirty, almost 32,000 gallons. Yeah. That's took, a lot of fuel. Yeah, and I think it does. I did see a, a, a ton of seat, which we'll find made the Concorde really expensive to, to operate. Yeah. So that fuel, again, it's kerosene, which just blows me away. Um, they They had it designed really ingeniously because again when you fly supersonic all sorts of different things happen and one of the things that happens is the balance of the plane that what you would call like the center of gravity yeah shifts backwards and when that happens like it's tough to imagine because you think the opposite's going to happen but imagine you have like a, a little dowel a little stick balanced on your finger okay if you move your finger further back along the dowel sure You'll notice that the front of the dowel goes down. Yeah. It, it because the center of gravity is further back, its balance is further back. Yeah. So that would happen when you hit supersonic speeds in the Concorde. Yeah, so in motion that's called the aerodynamic center. Okay. Um I like not, center of balance, but that's sure. Fine. Sure. Well, I think that's the same thing but in motion. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Maybe I might be wrong. And aerodynamically speaking. Uh yeah, so they had uh what they called they had three auxiliary or trim fuel tanks. If you've ever been on a boat, a boat has a way to trim the 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 motor. You might have trim tabs on it, or you might have a little button that makes your boat motor go up and down. And that's to keep, you know, that's so you don't, you're not cruising along through the water with your nose way out of the water. Mm. You, you trim that thing, and then it'll lower the nose a little bit. I had no idea that's what that was. Yeah, trim. So it's the same thing in this plane, but they used fuel that they would shift backward and forward mm-hmm. to level this thing out to find its aerodynamic centered balance. Right. They would they would if the if the 
aerodynamic balance, center balance. Was that what it was? Aerodynamic center, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like they they could pump just as much fuel as it took to these empty tanks to balance the plane out and make it fly perpendicular or horizontal parallel to the ground again. Yeah. Like they wanted to. And then when it was coming out of subsonic speeds, the opposite would happen. The, The center would move toward the front and the back would go up so they would pump gas back to the other tank right. and level it out again. Really ingenious stuff. Yeah, just think of a seesaw. Yeah. And uh, how, however many little kids you would need to put on there to equalize me. Yeah, because you're moving the fulcrum from different places. Yeah. That's just great. Yeah, great it's pretty analogy, cool. man. Way better than my stupid <laughs> dowel on your finger idea. Uh, well, imagine me on that dowel. Same thing. <laughs> Broken dowel. Yeah. Uh, and that's when I mentioned earlier when it had that famous crash in 2000. 94% of its fuel because of, you know, they had to have it in a certain place for takeoff. Right. It was all concentrated right there where that fire was. Wow. So bad news. Yeah, that's just bad luck. Uh, and then the paint was special paint even because, crazily enough, this thing got super hot. Right. They they came up with a, f- a white, a shade of white that's like four times more reflective than the white you see on normal planes. Parisian white. Which apparently you look at the Concorde and it blind you on the spot. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Parisian white sounds pretty nice, man. It does. Um, but they would do this to reflect heat, and they were they wanted to reflect heat because they they needed to get rid of as much heat as they possibly could. Yeah, because this thing would get really hot at the speeds it was going, just because of the friction. It's going through the air. There's yeah. air molecules in the air, and the faster you go, the harder you run into these air molecules, the hotter things get. And the the Concorde would actually, you could touch the windows from what I saw, and they would be warm to the touch in yeah. flight. Whereas if you touch a window on a 747, you're freezing. Yeah. Because it's like negative 60 degrees Fahrenheit out there. It would get up to like 200, like positive 260 degrees Fahrenheit on this, the, out, the yeah. outside of the nose in particular of the Concorde. And that's despite the air temperature. Yeah. Which would be even lower, higher up, right? Right. Man, yeah, like negative crazy. 60. Yeah. So in the end, the paint was about double, uh, twice as reflective as any other jet. So that solved that problem. Yeah. Pretty well. Uh, all right. So I guess let's talk about flying on this thing. Um, like we said, it can only hold 100 people. Right, 100 wealthy, wealthy people. Yeah, like round trip was 10 to 12 grand. And I don't know if we said this, like the allure of the Concorde was not just that it was it looked cool and it went like really fast. It, it cut the time to get from London to New York or Paris to New York virtually in half. Yeah. Which is huge. Like if you've ever made that trip, it's sure. just long enough to be we started to get pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so half the time, like three and a half hours, basically, from London to New York, that was a really valuable thing that people would be willing to pay for. And you had to pay a lot to get on the Concorde. I saw upwards of $12,000 round trip. Yeah. Which, correct me if I'm wrong, but if that's like 1980 money, yeah, that's like thirty two grand today. Yeah, and that's for... Sitting in what amounts to like a, a bucket seat. Yeah. Um, apparently the meals were very nice. Yeah, and the service was impeccable. Sure. And you felt special. And The and lounges were mwah. Did they have lounges? Yeah, they had special Concord lounges. Oh, see, I didn't see anything but seats in a, in a bathroom. They, well, no, no, I'm sorry, at the airports. Oh, oh, oh. They oh. had s- special lounges just for Concord passengers. 
Yeah, they had to gussy it up, I guess. Yeah. Got like a foot massage. And- yeah. <laughs> but I mean, if you're talking $32,000 round trip tickets, like you were sitting there rubbing elbows with like the sure. world's elite and celebrities. Yeah. And on one particular day in 1985, um, one of the people you might have been sitting next to was none other than Phil Collins. That's right. You want to tell him about Phil Collins in the Concord? Uh, yeah. All right. I remember because I was uh, uh, watching Live Aid at the time, mm-hmm. and n- as if Live Aid wasn't a big enough awesome thing to do on a, I can't remember if it was Saturday or Sunday afternoon. Well, tell the kids what Live Aid was. Oh, jeez. We, we really should have do to... a Live Aid episode. Yeah, we should. Live Aid was a, a benefit concert, and not the first benefit concert, but the first huge mm-hmm. um, multi-continental Benefit concert. There was a Led Zeppelin reunion. It was that yeah. big. The first ever. Back when they hadn't been broken up for that long. Right. Which is crazy. Yeah. Um, USA for Africa? Wasn't that what it was called? Uh, I don't know if it was, if Live Aid, I'm not sure if USA for Ma- for Africa was different, but it was, they were basically trying to alleviate the, the, um, the, the droughts and sure. the famines in, in Western Africa. Right. Headed up by or Bob Geldof. Africa, I'm sorry, yeah. Uh, who very famously portrayed Pink in um, The Wall, the movie The Wall. Oh, okay. And was you, you've seen that, right? Yeah, but I didn't know that was Bob Geldof. Yeah, that's Bob Geldof. Okay. He, the, in the movie, the character's name is Pink. Right. Not in real life. Yeah. Everyone, I know that. Right. Uh, and he was the, the singer for, uh, you know, he had the big hit for the Boomtown Rats. No idea. I don't know why I don't like Mondays. No. Yeah, it was Bob Geldof. I thought Geldof. that was an Elvis Costello song. No, Boomtown Rats. It sounds just like Elvis Costello, doesn't it? It sort of does. I never thought about that. I always thought that's who it was. Yeah. Okay, all right. So we got Bob Geldof. Okay. He put on this huge concert to help fund, to help fund um, the this charity for Africa. Yeah. Which we've mentioned before was actually like a terrible move. It went straight to the warlords, remember? Yeah, well, it, it, it did? I think in our famines episode we talked about this. Uh-huh. Good one. But um, it, it was such a huge concert that it took place – at the same time, in Europe and North America. Yeah. Like, this concert spanned the Atlantic. Wasn't it in Philly? Yes. Right. Philly and, I believe, London. Right. So, that's the stage. It's the hugest thing ever. Mm-hmm. That's where Queen very famously just brought down the house mm-hmm. at Wembley Stadium. Right. And uh, one of, like, the great performances of all time. Many, many performers did so. Right. Uh, and Phil Collins, as if that wasn't big enough, was like... Here's what I want to do. Yeah. I want to play on both continents. I want to do both of these shows. So he did. He he did a show at Wembley Stadium. From what I understand, it went pretty well. Sure. And then he went to the, uh, I think Heathrow, and hopped on a British Airways Concorde mm-hmm. and flew from London to New York, took a helicopter from New York to Philadelphia, and I think he went on stage at 1 or 2 p.m. in London and he made it to Philadelphia on time to take the stage at, I think, 2 p.m. in Philadelphia. He time traveled? Yes, <laughs> because that was the thing. The Concorde got you there so fast right. that it was less than the time difference yeah. between the east coast of the United States and London or Paris. Yeah. And so you, it was actually like a four-hour trip, but there's a five-hour time difference. So you could actually travel back in time, yeah. figuratively speaking, with the Concorde. And that's what Phil Collins did. So he... 
went off a stage in London and then came on stage in Philadelphia. It was pretty great. Thanks to the Concord. It was amazing. And and they had a camera crew following him and stuff. I remember seeing like, he's at the airport now and he's getting on the helicopter. Right. It was a big deal. Yeah. And apparently Cher was on the Concord. Who was? Cher. With Phil Collins, and he's like, hey, what's going on? And Phil Collins is like, oh, we've got this Live Aid thing. She's like, what is that? And he told her. She was like, you think I could come? And he's like, yeah, sure, just show up. I don't know if she did show up or not, but she didn't know about Live Aid. Maybe she joined him. Cher was probably like, why wasn't I invited? (laughs) I I would say that if I were Cher. What's wrong with me? Yeah. She would have been like, snap out of it to Bob Gelda. (laughs) All right, so Phil Collins is on this plane. Um, Through his eyes, this is what it looks like. You take off, nose down, mm-hmm. 38,000 pounds of thrust to get you going from zero to 225 miles per hour in three seconds. That is mind-boggling. Yeah, like you feel a little bit of like mm-hmm. push you back in your seat on a regular plane, mm-hmm. but not much. This is like you're sitting normally, you're back in your seat, like at the snap of a finger from what I gather. Yeah. Okay, so Phil Collins' face is like smashed off under the seat behind him. And he's like, what have I done? <laughs> right. I should have never left Genesis. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know that he left Genesis. No, he just did his own thing. Yeah, that's right. Great solo career. That's a good documentary, too. There was a Genesis doc out a couple oh, really? of years ago. Yeah. Like it covers, starts with the Peter Gabriel years? All and, of it. Oh, I can Yeah, see it's good that. stuff. Uh, all right, so you're back in your seat. Phil Collins is uh, drinking his... Um, vodka cranberry sloshing all over his face. (laughs) They reach cruising altitude very fast and pass the sound barrier. The nose is up now. And inside, this is very clever, they had a display sign on what mock you were flying so everyone could see. Yeah, mock and altitude. Pretty cool. Yeah. And again, like the the in-flight service was just bar none. Like the, the Cutlery was amazing. The food was amazing. The wine on board was amazing. The service was amazing. Like yeah. when you were on the Concorde, apparently they would, you would leave with a signed certificate saying that oh, you wow. had been on the Concorde. That's pretty cool. Like that's how important it was, even to like the super rich and famous. Yeah. And um, the whole presumption was is that the super rich and famous would pay to to go on this flight, and everybody else would just fly subsonic. Yeah. Um, but it, it was just too expensive even for the super rich and famous. Yeah, and bo- I, we didn't uh, mention even before you mm-hmm. took off, I think the pilots made a bit of a show of it. And they told everyone, like, prepare yourself. Mm. What you're about to experience is not like a regular flight. <laughs> really? You're going to be pushed back into your seat. We're going to be going this fast, uh-huh. this soon. And everyone's getting all jazzed up, you yeah. know, because like, hey, this is awesome. We're all super rich. Yeah. And we're all going super fast. Uh then once you get up there and you look out the window, what do you see? Apparently, you could see the curvature of Earth. That's crazy. There would not be any flat earthers had no. everybody ridden on the Concorde. If it were still around, That's right. you'd be like, no, it's round. <laughs> and apparently, you don't really feel the speed, um, even when you're hitting— so- uh, Oh, like when you're cruising? Yeah, like even when you hit the speed of sound, it doesn't feel much different. Although, I did see it was very noisy in the plane. Because uh, of the afterburners. Yeah, I mean, this one dude, I got a bunch of quotes from people. He said it was more like office chairs, bucket seats, very small windows, very noisy, extremely noisy. But I challenge anybody that didn't have a smile from ear to ear when they got on it. It looked like uh, the seats looked like the bucket seats of a a Ferrari. Yeah. Like an expensive sports car. They were upholstered that way. They they looked like a, a sports car, very nice sports car seats. But it was a plane full of them. It was really cool looking. Yeah, this one guy, Fred Finn, uh, international businessman, apparently took 
718 flights on the Concorde. I saw that. He holds the record, right? He's got to. Yeah. He has 718 signed certificates that he was on the Concorde. <laughs> so they definitely made it special for that price tag. Uh, about two and a half million people flew flights on the Concords. That's a lot for how expensive it was and the fact that it really just ran from 1970 to 2003. Yeah. That's a lot of, that's a lot of people. But it just, like you said, it wasn't affordable, right? No. So from the outset, apparently the Brits were like, oh, my God, what have we gotten ourselves into? And I saw it compared to the Brexit of the time, that the politicians all knew that this was a, a terrible idea. It was just a huge money well, a huge money pit. Right. But they pretended in public like it was going to do great things for Britain. And I think this was right before the— European Union started. And I believe the Concorde actually was probably one of those projects that helped foster the European Union at the time. Yeah. Because Europe was not that many decades away from being ravaged by World War II. Oh, sure. And again, the Marshall Plan came along. And by the way, I have to say in the Think Tanks episode, apparently I said that the Marshall Plan was based on the New Deal, which is totally wrong. And Uh I know it's wrong. But some listener wrote in and said, you were really wrong. And I was like, I didn't say that. And apparently I did. <laughs> but I know that that's not the case. But the Marshall Plan rebuilt Europe. And at the same time, it brought Europe together and helped foster the EU. But I think the Concord was a project that helped bring the EU along. But it was a money-losing project. And the reason the Brits stayed in it was because they were afraid the French were going to sue them for even more money if they backed out. I that's love French. history, man. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think... I think I think that was a money suck even at full capacity. Yeah. But like when you start at a, having like half full flights, you only have 50 people on yeah. a plane. Um it was just blowing through money. Plus also nowadays if if the Concorde were still around, there would be huge issues with it because it burned so much gas. Yeah. Kerosene sure. But it just burned through so much and created so much greenhouse gas and was just such a, a just a polluting monster. Yeah. That if we had gone just to supersonic planes, that would be an issue by now. Yeah, for sure. But yes, expense, the sound, the sonic boom, um, definitely got rid of it. But I think also um, British Airways and Air France, the only reason they took these planes on is because they got them for free from their governments. Right. Um, yeah, they bought a, like bought them for a dollar or mm-hmm. something. And there was this there was this point where, you know, in the 70s and I think again in like the early 90s where it really seemed like supersonic passenger travel was this nut that we were going to crack. Yeah. And it just went away. And the reason why, like Reagan actually wanted uh, NASA to work on a transport plane that basically went suborbital yeah. and could get you to Tokyo in two hours. That's crazy. It is crazy, but it's basically what Elon Musk is talking about with right. SpaceX I think he says he could get you from New York to Tokyo in 39 minutes. But again, the environmental impacts, just the right. wastefulness of the fuel, it's just mind-boggling how how inefficient it actually is. Yeah, and there's something about building something just for the super rich. Right. That it's not like it's not a great time for that. I think he said he could do it for about 20% more than an economy class ticket on a plane, though. Really? Yeah, which would be pretty amazing. Because he's a magician. He is. Did you see the um, Dear Moon announcement last night? No. Oh, dude. What's this? He's building a rocket that it's a it's a transport, like, passenger rocket that will go past the moon. Like, it's a tourist uh-huh. um, 
trip past the moon. Yeah. And this Japanese artist, no, he's a Japanese entrepreneur. Can't remember his name. Um, he bought the whole, he bought all the seats. And he is going to, over the next like five years, I think, before the, the flight, invite an artist from like nine different fields oh, cool. to come with them uh, just on the premise that they go back and make something that ins- that they were inspired to make from the trip. It's like his gift to humanity, um, this art project that he's basically kind of clomping on to Elon Musk's wow. BFR rocket. Well, sir, I think a uh, podcast eloquently describing that trip mm-hmm. would be a great contribution. Yeah, so podcasting is an art. Yeah, why not choose the most downloaded podcast in iTunes history <laughs> yeah. to do that? Yeah, he'll be like, okay, sure, but you guys have to choose which one goes. <laughs> oh, you could go. Oh, we'd flip a coin. We'd leave it to um, to Javier Bardem to decide. Who gets the plug through the head? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, so we had the famous wreck in 2000, and then finally in April 2003, um, Air France President Jean-Cyril Spinetta said, uh, May 31st, we're shutting it down. And then I think on June 12th, uh, they delivered to Dulles. Mm-hmm, that, that one, Air and Space Museum. That very first production Concorde that was delivered to Air France. Yep. And... Um, I believe October 24th, 2003 was, must have been the last British Airways flight then. Yeah, I guess they stuck around a little bit longer. Yeah. You know, the Brits. Uh, you can also go to the Aerospace Bristol Museum. That one you can definitely get on board and, really? and wander around. Yeah, I saw a video of that. Uh, in France, the Museum Air and Space Paris Le Bourget. Uh, Intrepid Sea Air and Space Museum in New York oh, apparently yeah. has one. That has a space shuttle too. Uh, Auto and Technic Museum Sinsheim in Germany, and the Museum of Flight in Seattle, I think, has one. Nice. All worth visiting. For sure. It's neat. And you don't have to be like an aviation buff. You can just be inspired by that kind of thing. Yeah. Can't wait to hear back from uh, Carrie and see her firsthand insight. Maybe I'll read that as a listener mail. Oh, that's a good idea. She'll probably say the same thing, which is like... So loud. So loud and cramped, and there were a bunch of snobs on board. Phil Collins was crying. (laughs) He's so, so scared. Uh, okay, well, that's Concords, and it's done for now. Who knows? Maybe they'll make a comeback, and we'll do a follow-up. Agreed. Uh, if you want to know more about Concords, type that word in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And uh, since I said that, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this one uh, one I found in a stack that I meant to read a while ago. So sorry, sorry to Stefan if you've been waiting on this. Hello, my name is Stefan. I'm 23 <laughs> years old, and I'm from Stuttgart, Germany. Uh, I started listening to your podcast because I want to improve my English for my bachelor's degree. That is an, um, that's hats off to you, Stefan. I love it. Uh, So I searched at Spotify for English podcasts and I found a playlist with some of your podcasts. I found out that they were from 2009. It was so much fun to listen to these. They were about castles, ninjas, and hiccup. Mm -hmm. Uh, And after listening to these episodes, I thought, hmm, they are from 2009. I don't think Josh and Chuck do these podcasts still today. Wrong. But I searched and I saw that you still make podcasts and I was very happy. Right. That's the story how I started to listen to you two guys and I found nothing that changed from 2009 to today. You make the same podcast the same way. So great. The greatest. It's true. I really like this guy. Hope you read my email. Would be very glad. With the best regards, Stefan. 
Stefan from Stuttgart. I love it, man. Thank you, Stefan. That's really awesome. Uh, that was great. It was really well written. Yeah, you're doing great with your English. Coherent. Uh-huh. Everything about it. Couldn't have done any better myself. Yep, we understood that more than we understand Jerry on most days. <laughs> uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Stefan did and let us know how great we are and how good we're teaching you English, is that correct? Sure. Uh, you can write to us. Well, you can hang out with us on social media. Go to our website, uh, stuffyoushouldknow.com, and you'll find all the links there. And you can send us an email directly. Just send it off to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 